I'm not advocating anything revolutionary. I'm advocating action to prevent anything revolutionary. Uh, if, if we don't address upfront the social environmental challenges we are facing, we will have a revolution. Welcome back to another episode of your favorite show on Europe. And this week we explore an area which we'd so far shied away from, economics. The idea of a show is to unpack the big debates rocking our continent. Debates that are relevant not just now, but for the years to come. And the question of Europe's economic recovery and the strategy we should adopt against the coronavirus-shaped recession will have a long-term effect on our continent's economic health. Now, as Joe Biden tours the American heartland, touting his record-breaking $1.9 trillion COVID relief package, laced with numerous tax and regulatory tweaks, we are convening two writers and economic scholars to explore where Europe stands in its own recovery efforts. The response to the 2008 crash differed in major ways across the Atlantic, in what ways are those discrepancies being widened or narrowed this time around? But more fundamentally, this crisis lays bare the question of what economic model we want. Do we simply want to go back to our pre-pandemic times? Or is this an opportunity to remake our economies in a greener, more inclusive and more resilient mould? You wouldn't expect our guests to be manning the barricades in case of a revolution. But they make a strong case for why, just like Teddy Roosevelt and FDR a century ago, we should implement radical measures to avoid a revolution. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite po podcasting platform and enjoy the episode. We are so very glad to be joined by two exceptional observers of Europe's economics with very complementary profiles, as you will see. Martin Sandbu, you've been the lead writer for Financial Times for the past 12 years, and the FT's European economics commentator. You've taught at Harvard, Wharton, and recently published for Economics of Belonging, a radical plan to win back for left behind and achieve prosperity for all. Bertrand Badré, you're the former manag managing director uh, and CFO of the World Bank. You're also a top, former top French civil servant and group CFO of Crédit Agricole and Société Générale. You are currently now the CEO of Blue Like an Orange Sustainable Capital Fund and the author of Voulez-nous sérieusement, Voulons-nous sérieusement changer le monde, which translates into English as Do we seriously want to change the world? So, the topic of today is the question of COVID and how the EU is recovering or not out of the crisis we're seeing. Now, the past few weeks, there's been a lot of controversy about vaccination, so we'll try to steer away from that. But broadly, vaccination numbers are slowly rising. We are starting to see the end of the tunnel health-wise. But economically, what kind of recovery can European countries expect? There's been a lot of fun among economists to make sure we'd find the most creative letter to describe the recovery. We've had some Vs, we've had some Ws, we've had some Us. So what are your expectations for the month to come? What are good and bad signs we should stay on the lookout for? Maybe Bertrand first. Well, interestingly, I'm, I'm based in the US. And as you say, I'm, I'm closely following what's going on in, in Europe. And I think as part of the alphabet soup for the recovery, the US coined the K-shaped recovery, which I think is unfortunately 
uh, pretty accurate. So K, because you have two bars, one pointing high and the other one pointing down. And it just says that for a minority of the people, the, the COVID crisis has really uh, been a boon. And, and uh, I don't know whether it's a 0.1%, 1%, 5%, 10% of the population, which basically enjoyed, uh, enjoyed the ride. I mean, notwithstanding potential deaths and losses of, of people, but uh, the billionaires are, are, are richer. People have saved uh, trillions of dollars additional. And uh, the net asset value of the equity portfolio has risen up. The real estate market is doing well. They've been able to work from home, etc. On the other end, this is a bar pointing down. Uh, a number of people have lost their job, in particular in minorities, but not only. And it has exacerbated uh, tensions with, within the US and also uh, it's been shown in the popularity of, of the Biden plan. So is it the same in Europe? Not exactly, because in particular about the uh, automatic stabilizer position, the fact that Europe has been also pretty quick to support the population. But yes, you, you have this kind of K-shaped recovery where uh, some people uh, have really navigated that period with way less trouble than others and uh, will basically exceed that crisis in a relatively better shape, whereas others will, will suffer for years uh, about the consequences of this crisis. And that's for me, for me one of the tough challenges we have ahead of us because these tensions were already there pre-crisis and they've been exacerbated, if not accelerated, by the crisis. So, Martin, where do you stand on the alphabet soup of recovery shapes? And where do you think, what kind of recovery should European countries expect and any sign of expectations and signals we should keep on the lookout for? So I agree with everything Bertrand said about the K-shaped or the risk of a K-shaped recovery with different parts of the population heading in different directions. But I think there's another, not a letter, but a, a mathematical sign that we should also worry about. And we played this game in the global financial crisis as well. And you may remember that then we talked about the, the risk of a square root sign shaped recession. That is a steep fall and then a rebound, but not all the way back up and then flat. And I think uh, that's actually what happened uh, the last time around, 12, 13 years ago, uh, because both in Europe and in the US, uh, you never saw the economy recover to the path you could have expected before the downturn. And this is the thing that really worries me about Europe today, that because we have done a lot, but we are still kind of timid about public spending and worried about public debt and so on. I think there is a much bigger risk in Europe than in the US that we take the foot off the accelerator too soon, withdraw support too soon, end up satisfying ourselves with an economy that hasn't gone as far back up as it could. Uh, and that, of course, will hurt the people at the lower end of the K much worse than the people at the higher end of the K. Uh, but the big point is that overall, we will not have made up for the loss. Uh, and that's striking uh, in terms of the difference with the US, where just uh, a week, uh, last week, the week before we're speaking now, the OECD projected GDP numbers for, for all its member countries uh, for the next year or two. And because of the Biden stimulus, it, accepts, it expects the US to return, not just return, but go above its pre-pandemic expectations by next year, whereas Europe will stay a couple of percent below. Uh, so we see that the very forceful response in the US not just makes up for the loss, but actually brings them back above where they would have been, whereas in Europe we see the opposite. Um, 
it's not too late to change that, but that's that's what I fear is about to happen now, and that would be a replay of what happened last time. This this is incredibly germane, uh, Martin. It, it really really segues nicely into the the following question, which, um, as you've just explained, I mean, your your book, The Economics of Belonging, that uh, came out June last year, uh, is really is really in the business of drawing lessons from 08. And um, to your to your point about kind of the performance uh, undershoot of um, the discrepancy that we're already seeing between that we saw back in 08 and we may uh, see again between uh, just just where the economy ends up recovering uh, relative to pre 08 and pre COVID levels, respectively. And and um, and there seems to be I mean, we're just we're speaking um, in the, in the heels of uh, just a major stimulus package in, in, in American history that is just a few weeks a few weeks ago passed Congress and is now being um, being uh, President Joe Biden is now is now I guess touting uh, his his uh, achievement there and um, it, it was a massive stimulus package almost two trillion dollars and what we're seeing again in some of even in uh, some commentators even in Europe are, are drawing this this uh, contrast where um, these stimulus packages in, in the U.S. are very generous. They were so even even under uh, in the, the even under uh, the prior president, despite the Republicans now being rather skittish uh, about this new one. And um, I mean, the the explanation that is usually given, right, even in, in your paper, Martin, is that uh, the um, monetary union and to a less extent the fiscal union that that we've built in Europe has some of these automatic stabilizers that make. Uh, make those kinds of relief efforts, like multi-trillion uh, dollar relief efforts, less necessary. Do, would you agree with that? And how else would you explain the sort of discrepancy in the financial, uh, I guess, um, muscle that that we're seeing uh, governments dole out? And I guess we'll start with Martin, and then we'll turn back to Bertrand. I think we need to look at this as as a you know game in two halves, or probably more, like a, a game of four quarters. Uh, it's not just one time you have to address this problem, right? So in 2020, it's true that because of automatic stabilizers, because of these large welfare states and generally large tax take, governments automatically put a lot of money into the economy in Europe, uh, about as much as what the US had to put in place these big one-off packages to do. But, But it was sort of similar as a share of GDP. This year, it looks very different because this year we've had uh, the Biden administration put in place this 1.9 trillion package on top of what came last year. In Europe, well, we'll see how long these support, uh, specific emergency support uh, packages will remain in place. But at the moment, we're looking at much less stimulus, even including automatic stabilizers, than what um, um, than what the U.S. will have done in total. So again. You know, this is a long crisis and a deep crisis, and you can't think that because Europe did a good job, and it did in 2020, uh, you know, we can now sit down and and relax and just wait for the recovery to come. Uh, I've written recently that actually the moment of maximum danger may very well be when the recovery really takes off, because that's when in Europe we'll be tempted to say, okay, we don't need furlough schemes anymore. We can take away all this emergency support, all the special loans for companies and so on. But without putting extra demand stimulus in place to just get the economy really going uh, in high gear. So, so I think the end of this year is going to be a real moment of truth, where hopefully the vaccination rollout will be will be complete. Hopefully the lockdowns will all be done, 
and we'll then see what are the long-term, what is the long-term fallout of this hit that many of us took. And that's where the European response may fall short, may fall short, even though the US will, will still be fueling the economy there. I don't have much to add, actually. I don't think there is a competition to see who is putting the more money into the system. Actually, it's true that the US, for exactly the reason Martin described, have done a lot. And the truth is that under Trump, they already had started to put a lot of money at play. It was already bigger last year. And in total, the calculations, it's close to $40,000 per US household or something like this, which is unheard of, $40,000 in a year. But I, I think what is amazing uh, seeing this from the US is a combination, and, and I know, Francois, you say we shouldn't uh, discuss vaccine, but it's a combination of this stimulus package plus, plus a, a relatively effective uh, vaccine rollout. And this, this really uh, will bring the US back to where it was before the crisis, as Martin reminded us. So that's, I think, what it is in the US. Does it mean that Europe is bad? Again, it's not to, to, to distribute medals. So I think Europe could probably have done better. But the truth is that as opposed to what happened during the last crisis, the last financial crisis, Europe has done way better. Uh, not, not great yet. And again, David will be in the details. So we all hope that the, uh, the, the, new, uh, the new plan to, to borrow uh, at the European level and distribute this partly in loans, partly in grants will work okay, that it will be not lost in bureaucratic details, etc. And uh, I, I think this is really what is important. This is a combination of the national plans and the EU plan. Uh, we'll see how it's working. I mean, I, I, I still am tempted to see the glass more than half full, and I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic, again, as opposed to the past. Uh, the second question, besides the size of the package, is really what Martin highlighted, is really uh, until when? Until when do we continue to support the economy? And, and we try to avoid the mistakes uh, of the past crisis, where basically, after a proper reaction in 2008 and nine. Uh, basically, we move too early uh, in the wrong direction, both actually in the US and in Europe, but it was more felt in Europe because on top of that, we felt the, the, the euro crisis. So uh, I think the lessons have been drawn from the past crisis. It's been repeated by every leaders. Uh, it's very interesting, actually, incidentally, to see the debate that has happened in the US on whether the package was not too big. I mean, it was launched by Larry Summers and Olivier Blanchard. Uh, and now with all the discussions around the uh, inflation uh, rate expected and the rise in interest rates. So we, we'll see. Again, uh, the, the, the jury is out. But I think all in all, the two sides of the Atlantic have, have made the right decisions. We, we'll see for how long and if the size was correct. But let's congratulate ourselves. I mean, they've learned the lessons from the past. So both of you try and make an interesting case in your book which is we should use this opportunity to transform our economy. You know, these massive funds that the EU, that national governments are mobilizing, we should use them to transform our economy, make it more green, make it more resilient, make it more sustainable, make it more inclusive. But isn't that fundamentally a risk right now, which is we've got all this money and we're, we're arguing we could use this different opportunities to do all these different uh, or, or kind of fill out all the laundry list of things we wanted to do the past few years, is there a risk by focusing these resources on the long-term health of the European patient that we just risk jeopardizing the patient's short-term survival? Now, to some extent, we are telling him, oh, you're sick, well, that's because you didn't do enough, enough fitness, and he's dying. Shouldn't we focusing, be focusing a little more on making sure he survives 
the next six months rather than focusing on transforming our economy for the next t- decade. Thanks, François. I think it's, it's interesting. What, what you call a laundry list, actually, is, a, is an intergovernmental agreement dated 2015. I mean, we have all signed, and I say all now that the U.S. have... Um, come back to the Paris Climate Accord. We have all agreed on the uh, Addis Agreement on the Financing for Development Partnership. We have all agreed on the Sustainable Development Goals, and we have all agreed on the Paris Accord on Climate. Uh, the truth is that until uh, the COVID crisis, we never have been really serious about it. So the point is whether we use that crisis to come back to what we agreed five years or six years ago, or being serious about it, or whether we don't. And uh, and this is really what is interesting is that uh, and it, it will create a lot of tensions with the people. Uh, a year ago, there was no money for anything. And suddenly we have trillions. And uh, so people won't believe you anymore if you say there is no money to, to, to make the change. So it's going to be a, a very difficult uh, art of execution for politicians to go to the next stage. And coming back to your point, uh, I, I think, and it's always the, at the heart of management, how do you take care of the next second while not losing sight of the next 10 years. So, uh, because the two are uh, interconnected. I mean, you will not, uh, you're right, you will not get to the next 10 years if you don't survive the next second, but surviving the next second in a bad shape doesn't mean you will reach the next 10 years. And so you have to, to balance both. And I think uh, when it was about all this conversation on the world after the great reset, build back better, I mean, everybody has had this uh, nice slogan about the, what, what comes next. I mean, it, it was absolutely obvious that it was more interesting to look forward than backward, to prepare the future rather than to look in the rear mirror and, and build back uh, based on our past experience. So I think if we don't use that opportunity to at least move a little bit in the right direction, that would be a lost one. I, I worked, uh, uh, as you know, Francois, quite extensively with Michel Consu, who had been the longest serving head of the IMF. And one lesson I learned from him is that when there is no crisis, you don't change. When there is a crisis, you change a little. So let's change a little. I think I would go further, actually. Um, I mean, imagine a middle-aged man breaks a leg, goes into hospital, you know, puts on a cast, also has high blood pressure because of bad diet. So, you know, we could say, oh, you know, now he's recovering from a broken leg. This is not the time to focus on improving the diet. But maybe not. Maybe that's precisely the time to... You know, once you're thinking about your health, uh, you've had a, a change, a shock in your life, that may be precisely the point to start working on other things. Um, so I think that's a little bit the situation uh, we're in. Uh, we've had a huge shock, a huge disruption to our economies, bigger than we could have imagined. Um, but it's not as if uh, we don't need to make these other changes. Um, Bertrand was talking about how we have these legal obligations, international treaties, and so on. But in addition, there's a reason for that. It's because the planet is on on the, a course towards climate catastrophe. We know we have to change that. And we also know we need to make big investments into digitizing our economies and so on. And I would add that we're in a social crisis. We've had increased inequality for decades. And I, I know we'll get to this theme. Uh, but all of those uh, ailments, all of those ills, it would take big change and disruptive change to address them. Well, we've had the disruptive change now. Actually, we've, we've sort of been knocked so far off the normal course that rather than try to get back to where we were, it's actually easier from here to try to work on those transitions and try to come back to a better trajectory rather than back to the same one and then have to try to change from that onto a better trajectory. So, so I, I 
really want to very strongly reject this view that because we've had this crisis, we need to lay off uh, the big changes we have to make in economic policy. On the contrary, this is the time to double down. This is tremendously helpful, Martin. And, and uh, I, I think what you've just argued really, really um, borrows from a lot of the, the the themes in your book, to which I want to return here for um, a question that is just about zeroing uh, a little bit further into, into what has already been said. Uh, but you both seem to be very much, and just based on what you've published, written, uh, you're both, um, you're both in, you know, in, 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 uh, in, in sort of, a in a warning, um, uh, uh, mood and, and kind of, um, and, and really going back to this theme of not letting a good crisis go to waste. Um, you know, uh, Bertrand has written extensively about, you know, some of the lessons that can be learned in terms of global financial governance from, from 08 and your own book, I think Martin is, is just very, very uh, bold in a, in a lot of ways, because you look at the larger picture in, in Western political economy and, and you know, and, and reflect on how uh, some of the crisis of belonging, as you called it, in terms of disconnecting uh, middle class folk across the West from uh, the sort, sort of social compact, how that has come back to bite the political compact and the liberal democratic compact. So I, I think I think some of the, the, the arguments in, in your book are, are, are really relevant to this uh, to this conversation. And. What do you, you obviously spent a lot of time, um, you know, exchanging and, and talking to lawmakers, people who are kind of um, uh, uh, making making the calls these days. And, and what are you optimistic uh, about? What are some of the lessons that you're already optimistic uh, are, are being learned? What you know, you look at these people that are now, uh, you know, weathering the crisis. And what are, and what what do you think are the lessons that have already been learned? And in your in your answer, you can all you can of course make. Uh, that interact with COVID itself, and 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 you know the way the lessons that we've learned from the failures of financial relief and other and other policies. It just just in the past few months. So what are, what are you hopeful in terms of the lessons that are that are being learned? And we can start with uh, I guess Martin first, and then and then go to Bethlehem. Yeah, you know I I was finishing this book uh, just as coronavirus appeared in China. And I guess it went to print as as the pandemic was, was hitting Europe. So I couldn't work that into the book. Uh, but, you know, I was writing that uh, as a reaction to the political shocks we had in the West over the last decade, in particular, the Trump election, uh, the Brexit referendum, and also the rise of anti-system, this anti-liberal backlash we see in pretty much all Western countries. And I argued that really had to do with the big economic changes we've seen over the last uh, 40 years and mismanagement of deep economic structural change. Then we had the pandemic. Um, so I think that's done two things. Um, uh, one, to, one to make us despair and one to make us hopeful, to put it that way. Uh, the first one is that it has intensified all the same dynamics that I identified in the book. Uh, so it's it's intensified the inequalities uh, that we already saw. It's people at the bottom in more precarious work, people without formal education or with less formal education in the manual services who are both more exposed to disease because their jobs required physical presence and more exposed to the economic shock because theirs were the jobs that were shut down and couldn't be done comfortably from a desk at home. So they're, they're the ones who've had to run down their savings, uh, whereas people in thinking jobs, you know, desk-based jobs, uh, we've been forced to save and will come out of this nicely, like, like Bertrand mentioned. Um, so the pandemic has intensified 
processes that were already in place and had actually already caused big political ructions in Western societies. Uh, but the reason why I say there's also cause for hope is that I think it has also accelerated our consciousness and the political awareness of, of the um, um, the unsustainability of the economic settlement we've we've had. So we've seen a lot of people from you know from far away from the radical fringes call for a new social contract, including my own newspaper, the Financial Times, uh, in an editorial. So everyone is now conscious that what was happening before really can't be allowed to to go on. Uh, and I think an appreciation for people in, in healthcare, an appreciation for people doing all those physically necessary jobs, cleaning floors, delivering food, and so on. All of that has opened a window of opportunity. Plus the fact that every government has become an accidental radical. All these governments put in place much more money much more intervention into the economy than you would have imagined before. So the world has changed. We've seen what governments can do if they want to. So you can no longer argue against radical action. Radical action has been taken. The argument now moves to what should we use radical action for? That is a very open question, but it means that we're already debating in a very different space than we did only 13, 14 months ago. And that gives me reason for hope because that's where the possibility for change lies. Yeah, I share I share a part of Martin's analysis. I share the same reasons for hope. I think, uh, as I said previously, we, we've learned the lessons of the previous crisis in the sense that we have acted very fast. Uh, and so we did not let uh, the world collapse and, and we avoided Lehman type of accident. Uh, and that's good. I mean, the, the central banks and now the government have reacted fast. They've demonstrated that they could do, as you rightly say, Martin, radical things, things which were absolutely unheard of before, even not being, we were not even being able to conceive this type of thing. So that, that's, that's positive. My, my, my only, uh, and what is positive too, is that we've spent a lot discussing. I mean, even if you can dismiss the discussions on the building back better, the great reset and say it's talk, talk, talk. Yeah, it's, uh, words are important. I mean, uh, it's important that the FT say something. It's important that the economy say something. It's important that people discuss that. Doesn't mean that this will translate into action immediately, but it's part of the uh, delivery process. Uh, where I, 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 I'm still a, a little bit more hesitant, and, and that's really why I added the word between brackets seriously in the title of my book, is if we really want to be serious uh, and do not repeat the mistakes of, of, of the previous crisis, where we basically we, we rapidly agreed to patch up the system, uh, we did not work on the design of the system itself. We did not really address the fault lines. And what would worry me is that if we are back to some form of roaring 20s, we forget too fast uh, the big issues underlying the model. And that's where I think we have to be serious. I, I think we are still very much working under the premises, and it would be too long to discuss here, about the premises of the system put together in the 70s. I mean, to be very simplistic, again, it's Milton Friedman and the social purpose of business is to increase its profits. That's really at the heart of the financial models, at the heart also of most of our governance, etc. Uh, we need to work on the operating system. We need really to, to basically uh, open the hood, uh, look at the engine, take our toolbox and work on a number of pretty boring stuff like uh, compensation policy, like accounting standards, like uh, fiduciary duties, like uh, governance, all these things that make the daily life of the system. If we don't send that, 
despite the, the goodwill shown through this crisis, we might fall back soon in the previous traps. And, and, and the social environmental challenges that Martin highlighted so well uh, will not be addressed because the system do not take them into account naturally. We, we have to, to, to really work on the system uh, to be serious. And, and that's, that's really uh, where on the one hand there is hope because uh, we have all the pieces of the, of the puzzle on the table. Uh, we have money, we have technology, we, we have the tools, we have the international bodies, we have, we've got everything. We, we, we miss a little bit of leadership to put the pieces of the puzzle together. So hope because we have the pieces of the puzzle, uh, hesitant because uh, the puzzle is still not totally done. I, I, I agree with, with much of what Bertrand says. I think there's an, possibly an interesting contrast here between us, depending a bit on what Bertrand means with the system. Uh, so, so I think a lot of what needs to be done can be done with the existing sort of economy we have, so long as we get the policies right. Businesses respond to incentives. We've given them the wrong incentives for too long. We deregulated, etc. We didn't want to... To use to use the government in a smart sort of way to direct uh, the direction of change. Yeah, I, I, uh, I know. Be, be, being being French, I mean, we are we are used to to know to cut not only rooms but heads, and, and, and that's why when when a French guy discuss about the system, people imagine uh, 1789, 1793 again, and uh, the revolution and the abolition uh, of privileges. So that's not what I mean precisely. Uh, I mean, it's really working uh, on the uh, on the design of the system. That's what I mean by by providing the right incentives through uh, accounting standards, through uh, the ratings, through disclosure. All these things. Uh, where, where again, I think market economy is 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 the best thing we found to allocate resources under constraints. But market economy needs to be a little bit channeled channeled by market, market being the consumers, the investors, the people working in companies, entrepreneurs, the civil servants, etc. What do we want from the market? And the market will follow. And second, by a set of norms and regulations where we've probably been a little bit, we have been a little bit loose uh, and, and provided the wrong directions in the past uh, decades. One question, which I think we've, we've avoided so far, but it's a question of public debt. You've both have pretty radical um, books but the question of debt brings out of radicalism in general. So Thomas Piketty has argued for the cancellation of all ECB-held government debt. What do you make of that debate? And you know, if we are serious about changing the world, shouldn't we be questioning the stacking up of debt, which is reducing the ability of governments to react to future crisis, like the environmental crisis? Um, you know, shouldn't we make sure governments aren't this shackled by debt? And, you know, the, the day interest rates would, would hike, governments would be completely suffocated. Um, you know, sh shouldn't the radicals you, you both are, should uh, call for overturn of uh, public debt? What do you think, Martin? Look, I think we, we very often forget to go back to the original question of asking why are we worried about high public debt? Because even these calls for cancelling debt accept the premise that it's a problem to have a high debt to GDP ratio. Uh, but I'm not at all convinced that it is, especially given that uh, interest rates seem to have uh, fallen on an indefinite basis, at least. Governments can now lock in. They can sell bonds at 30, 50 years at virtually zero interest rates and negative real inflation-adjusted 
interest rates. So here's an interesting fact that isn't mentioned often enough. Uh, public debt to GDP has gone up in, in every country over the last year. Uh, the cost of public debt service, the amount, the size, the share of the budget you'd have to devote to pay interest, that's gone down over several years because of lower interest rates. So for most rich countries, uh, even though they have much higher debt burdens than in the past, the cost of that debt burden, the, the, the burden itself, uh, is much lighter than it used to be. So what is the problem we're trying to solve here? What is it we're afraid of? It cannot be that it's very costly to carry this debt because it isn't. Uh, well, maybe it is that we could get into a crisis and nobody wants to refinance the debt, uh, like in the Eurozone debt crisis. Well, you solve that both by having a central bank that's acting to keep interest rates down in a crisis, but especially you can just do it by issuing very long-term debt. You know, If you don't have to refinance for 30 years, you don't have that problem for 30 years. So, you know, uh, it's not clear that there is a problem that calls for any solution, let alone a radical one. My preference now is, you know, we borrow what we need. Borrowing what we need will allow us to keep growth higher. We mentioned earlier in the conversation the fact that the U.S. will have a GDP higher than what it was predicted to have before the pandemic by next year. That means that you actually uh, make it, it makes it easier to service that debt. So let's not take for granted what we have all uh, internalized for the last 30, 40 years, that high public debt or public debt in at this scale is necessarily a problem. We need to go back a bit and ask, well, what is the problem we're trying to solve? Is there really a problem? And is it as big as the alternative problem of not borrowing enough? I, I, I tend to agree with Martin, actually, and I like the way you, you phrase it. I think there are, there are two issues there. One is a technical one, which is about uh, the issue of non-reimbursing debt, which would create a lot of a trust issue uh, and would jeopardize uh, the relationship with the central banks, etc. At a moment where it doesn't, we don't need more money. We, uh, As Martin said, I mean, we even don't know what to do with the money and we even are not capable on the EU side to activate yet the, 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 the stimulus package. So uh, it, it, it's true that we are still very much uh, we have still very much printed in our brains the, the Maastricht criteria from the 1980s, 1990s. At that time, you borrowed at 8, 9, 10, 12%. And so 60% debt to GDP ratio seem about right. Uh, today, I mean, you borrow at zero, if not negative rate. So it's a totally different equation. Uh, and as has been shown over the past years, I mean, money was not the issue. When people wanted to get money, they could get money, even long-term money, 30, 50 years, 100 years at zero or, or just above that. So I don't think it's the right discussion to have because it might have collateral effects on trust, which might be very detrimental and way more detrimental midterm than the questions we are, we are discussing today. So I don't think it's a, it's, it's a right discussion. And again, if you take a step back, I mean, whatever... Uh, I mean, it, it, it's it's a pretty nice system when, when you borrow from the central bank. It's a little bit more difficult in the EU because the central bank is owned by different states and so you have tensions between that. But if, if you take the, the public system as a whole, whatever interest you pay to the system is, is given back to you as a dividend. So, of course, you might be paralyzed by the debt-to-GDP ratio, but is it totally meaningful to look at this today? So, both of you don't shy away from pretty radical roadmaps in your book. Bertrand, you call for revolution. Martin, you want economic radicalism. And yet, neither Financial Times nor the World Bank 
are known to be particularly revolutionary. Have you always been revolutionaries? Or have you evolved in a way which has led you to keep those positions, to have those positions nowadays, in order to inculcate a new crop of policy making? But, you know, from the outside, outset, it seems a bit strange that the last believers in, uh, you know, kind of a revolution and with a big R would be in the places which you'd expect to be, uh, uh, you know, overturned, overtoppled. Martin. Well, you know, I, I start my book by going back to the 30s and, and writing uh, about Franklin Roosevelt. Um, I mean, was Franklin Roosevelt a revolutionary? He was a radical, certainly in my book, but he was a radical from the liberal centre and in the service of liberal centrism. He was radical precisely in order to stave off revolution, either from the left or, or a takeover from the fascist right, as happened in Europe. And he was successful at that. Uh, and I think we need to think in the same terms today. Um, you know, if, if by revolution you just mean breaking with convention, yes, I'm a revolutionary, but uh, but I'm a re revolutionary, you know, in the sense that Roosevelt and John Maynard Keynes and so on uh, were in order to try and save what is good about the system uh, that we have that has created some big problems. But I think my point is, look, we can fix these problems without giving up the system as a whole, which is different from what these populist illiberal backlash challengers have said, which is in order to fix the problems, we need to reject the system as a whole. So I want to uh, save the system. So I'm not a revolutionary uh, in that sense. But, but I, I would just add that there's been you know, I don't think Bertrand and I are, are unique. There's been a tremendous change in thinking over just the last few years on climate, on the role of the government. And you see this at the, the pinnacles of economic orthodoxy, what used to be uh, the International Monetary Fund, for example, the OECD. These organizations uh, are saying wildly different things from what they said even 10, but especially 20 years ago. So Bertrand, do you not want to get the guillotine out? Or did I miss something? No, you. Well, yes, yes, and no. Actually, uh, as as you reminded us, I was born and raised in the French uh, traditional school system, where which is breeding more incrementalists than revolutionaries, surprisingly. And for many years, I saw that incremental changes uh, was the name of the game. And uh, I remember I had a first. Uh, I would say epiphany in a way when I was uh, uh, at, at a meeting with Paul Volcker in 2008 in Paris. We had uh, gathered a meeting on the subprime crisis. It was before the Lehman uh, collapse, uh, April or May 2008. And uh, we had also Jean Tirole, actually, who later became a Nobel Prize for economics. And I remember uh, uh, Paul Volcker was questioned by the audience and said, Mr. Volcker, you are very aggressive with Wall Street. You criticize us. Uh, but we are just uh, following the rules. I mean, this game is the game that, that is available to us and we're just doing our job. So stop being aggressive with us. And Paul Volcker, uh, who is pretty impressive, uh, physically speaking, including, uh, replied to them, say, I'm not aggressive to you guys, but I, I will not accept in 2008 uh, the way I could not accept in 1945 the Nuremberg excuse. You are the best paid in the system. You have the best diplomas of the best schools. So you can't pretend you don't know uh, where the system is leading us. And so you have to wake up. And you just cannot say we are following the rules. 
Uh, and for me, it was a wake-up call. I, I say, okay, okay, what is this system I'm working in, and what are, what are the issues? That's why I started to, to move a little bit away from incrementalism. And then, uh, working, I mean, the, the, the 12 following years, I've, I've started to see what was happening. And in particular, in 2015, when we agreed on the sustainable development goals on climate, etc., I mean, the, the intrinsic underlying idea was that uh, we will go naturally there. And, uh, the, the goodwill of people, the enthusiasm will lead to a, a race to the top and not a, a race to the bottom. We trusted that market pressure, enthusiasm, and kind of common interest will, will get us in the right direction without adding further incentive. And that's why I realized it was not enough. You need to change the system. I mean, you need to work on the system itself. And that's why I say incremental is not going to save the system. Uh, we, we need to be more revolutionary, probably in the sense of, of Martin. He, he quoted um, FDR, Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, I discovered coming to the US uh, another Roosevelt, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, uh, the, the second or third cousin of, of Franklin, which was the youngest ever president in the US. Uh, uh, a controversial guy, but also a very impressive guy who, who incarnated the so-called progressive era in, in the US. And he did a lot of things which thought, which looked revolutionary at that stage. And I like something he said. He said, I'm not uh, advocating anything revolutionary. I'm advocating action to prevent anything revolutionary. And that's precisely what we have to address today. Uh, if, if we don't uh, address upfront the social environmental challenges we are facing, we will have a revolution. I mean, uh, this is very well described in Martin's book. Uh, the tensions, we, we've seen uh, uh, symptoms. If we don't really co change course, uh, we will have an issue. So uh, if we don't want to, I would say very selfishly, we don't want to have our heads beheaded, we, we better change now. Thanks to both of you. That's a great place to conclude. I think none of us wants to get beheaded. Thank you so much for this fantastic overview of what is going on in Europe for European economic recovery. We've asked ourselves a question, should we just use this occasion to recover or should this be an opportunity for renewal? And we've concluded that you're not truly revolutionaries in that sense, but you want to prevent a revolutionary so that we can all keep our heads on top of our shoulders. Thank you to the both of you and see you next week. So we just got done with our, our chat with Bertrand Badré and Martin Sanbu. What do you, you think of it, Francois? What I find is really interesting, and they both covered really well in depth, is when you talk about Europe in America, you have this tendency to associate Europe with Keynesian um, demand-side economics much more than America. But what is interesting is both in 2008 and even perhaps even more so this time, it seems America has learned from past crises. What is important is massive injection of cash into the economy. Massive recovery funds on a scale which uh, is much smaller. You know, it seems like we're being dwarfed by America, which is strange when you think about it. Because when I think about America, uh, ideologically, it doesn't seem to, to be bent towards massive redistribution. Now, to some extent, sorry, not redistribution, but massive injection of money. But to some extent, they don't have much choice because, as we said, there are fewer automatic stabilizers in America, which means. You know, for example, in Europe, when when um, you are unemployed, there's a much more there's a much more um, safety nets, and so when there's an increase in unemployment, there's also going to be an increase in unemployment benefits, which means that government spending is automatically going to rise 
uh, whether there's a law or not, which is passed to inject more money into the economy. In America, you need to get uh, legislation to inject more money into the economy. But still, I find it interesting that despite that, that, that difference, America seems to be a lot more hell-bent into throwing money into the economy than, than, than Europe. It seems to be a, a bit of a paradox at first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and I think we're, we're, um, we're living with the consequences of that paradox. There's perhaps, we, we didn't uh, kind of draw the contrast starkly enough and the fact that it goes back to the waning days of uh, the, pro- the prior administration, some of the, uh, I mean, and you, you talk about kind of the political economy of the states and what uh, and why why it doesn't have kind of the welfare net uh, that um, kicks in automatically when a crisis hits. But I, I think one of the paradoxes that was the backdrop to this conversation was the fact that uh, Republic Republicans, I think, I think only a couple of Republicans, or I, I would have to check the the vote the vote uh, tally. Uh, but I think uh, Republicans were very were very bearish on the prior uh, stimulus package. Uh, the uh, forget what, what exactly what, what it was called at the time, and now they're very skittish about this uh, thing they've called the sort of the Nancy Pelosi wish list, which, uh, to be absolutely fair to them, uh, has a whole lot of pork in it that has very little to do with COVID itself. It's got a lot of uh, you know stuff. It's got a lot of it. It ca- kind of cancels a lot of the uh, debt from pension plans and, and you know, in, in, um, in blue states. Yeah. Yeah. It's in sort of, you know, it has a lot of giveaways to blue states and things that aren't necessarily going to get us closer to a, to, to a fully national recovery. Um, but yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think some of the differences that we had to, um, that we had to, to draw as the sort of the backstory to our conversation where, you know, is, is really this, this sort of, uh, you know, the difference in automatic stamp stabilizers. I think some, I think the EU is also, or to be more precise, the Eurozone has also journeyed uh, some of the way from 08 and already kind of um, scrapped some of the old pieties. You've seen it with EC, the ECB, uh, ECB policy uh, throughout COVID, but even, even in the wake of the sovereign debt crisis, the ECB was already very, uh, was already very, um, aggressive, I think, by ECB standards when uh, the sovereign debt crisis hit in, in 2012. And so, yeah, I, I do totally agree. There is these kind of, there's there's the, the moving uh, pieces of the puzzle in on both sides of the Atlantic. And I think I agree with your starting premise that uh, American policymaking, economic policymaking has generally been more flexible. Right. And, uh, and it was very interesting also to kind of t- tie all this back to Martin's argument in the book, which is that uh, the way that prior crisis had been dealt with, and he goes all the way back to the 30s, the way that prior um, kind of systemic crisis uh, in, in kind of Western capitalism have been dealt with uh, through through a heavy dose of, he calls it radicalism. You, you've just called it uh, Keynesian kind of policy. But um, but yeah, I think, I think, you know, I think what was so interesting about this episode was to bring together both um, uh, kind of a mainstream financial journalist and a former, uh, you know, global um, global economic policymaker and have them uh, share perspectives and really agree on 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 much uh, in terms of what are the the at least this sort of the the disposition that that uh, policymakers have to uh, show if they really want to lay uh, a firmer footing for, for for Western economies going into the post COVID world. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot to pick on. Um, also, I'm happy we had a bit of a conversation on on the idea of. of you know the ECB held debt cancellation. Mm-hmm. I agree. I, I thought I'm, I'm. I mean, it's interesting debate. I, I think it's an interesting debate to be had. But I think it seemed like a bit of a sideshow of a time where 
you know, public debt essentially costs nothing. It can even get you uh, money back from the ECB. So it seems like a bit of a strong, strange conversation to be had right now. And it's not a conversation you're seeing in, in America, for, for example. Um, and yeah. and one, of, one of the, one of the, the um, points of context in your question, I think we either, um, I, I think, I think you, you, at some point you did get into the question of sort of monetary policy and debt policy and how, how central banks should go about government debt at a time when they're printing money massively. And that, uh, you know, we're, we're, as you said, in, in one of your questions, I believe, uh, the, um, the kind of the, the, um, uh, the leg, the, the I guess the margin and the leg room is being burned um, for the next crisis, where, where governments are going to be left to suffocate whenever they have, whenever uh, interest rates are hiked next, right? Uh, but um, I wanted to ask you the the context for that was um, I guess you were quoting uh, Thomas Piketty has said something about ECB debt. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Thomas Piketty um, says the ECB, we are Europeans, we are owners of the ECB. And the ECB owns our government's debt. It's kind of a weird, strange cycle. Let's get rid of it, or you know, let's let's keep it at zero uh, percent for the rest of its life. You know, something like that. But what is so um, interesting? Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. That's it. No, what what I think is so interesting, and I, I wish we kind of um, use that that what well, we use that use that as a as a quote because uh, what I what I find so interesting. Well, for for starters, this comes from someone who has never been too gung ho about. Uh, government debt. He almost like doesn't. There, there, there is like this whole new school of thought in e, in economic departments. Well, perhaps not. Uh, you know, made uh, perhaps not uh, academically uh, established uh, so much yet. But there is uh, a growing school of thought in. Uh, you see it in people like Alex, Alexander Ocasio Cortez on mm-hmm. on on uh, the U.S. side of the pond, but also um, uh, it's cropping up in in Europe in, in major ways. This idea that we should. Uh, mon- modern monetary theory is, is how they call it, right? MTT, MMT, the idea that uh, uh, government debt uh, at the end of the day doesn't matter, that you can just erase it, that governments can get indebted uh, uh, vis-a-vis their central banks and that that debt can, it, it doesn't matter whether or not that debt is, is eventually repaid. And um, yeah, I think I think Thomas Piketty's comment was interesting, but I don't think the political economy of debt is changing all that much. I think uh, the German pensioner class holds too much sway over like in, in you know, uh, in sort of the, the Frankfurt um, monetary policymaking cast. And I think that uh, as much as, you know, we're, we're kind of, we're, we're kind of analyzing uh, what are the, the, um, the, the evolving, the evolving uh, policy dogmas, but I think that specific dogma is one that hasn't changed that much. We're not seeing a Germany uh, that is more willing, much more willing than it was post a way to, to indulge in sort of like, heavily, uh, heavily, um, Keynesian, uh, you know, um, uh, inflationary policies in terms of, you know, um, uh, uh, canceling debt and things of that nature. Well, it was our very first uh, episode on economics. It won't be the last, as you see, we've opened many more questions than we've answered. So it's an invitation to do another one in the near future. We're so very happy you could both you could all be with us um, in the show. Next week we are going to have a fun episode on the Netherlands with a Dutch election going on. Um, so stay tuned for that. We are going to have another Financial Times journalist. Brownie points for those of you who guess who that is. Um, <laughs> and looking forward to it. Don't forget to like, subscribe, rate, all the rest of it on your favorite podcast app. It always puts a smile on our face to see your support week after week. So if you have a time to do it. But it always helps. Anyways, see you all next week.
to you all. Thank you.